Amen. Thank you all so much for setting the table here for our text this morning in Luke 5. But before we get into that, I want to draw your attention to something. If you would, take your uh, bulletin out this morning. You'll find a, a giving envelope and a prayer guide for Annie Armstrong. And if you're wondering who Annie Armstrong is, Annie Armstrong was a mis- uh, someone who raised mission support for many many missionaries here in North America we take a special offering for her at Easter time we do a special offering for Lottie Moon for international missionaries Annie is just for North America so it's for the United States and Canada you say well Pastor Travis Jesus gave us the Acts 1-8 challenge right in Acts 1-8 Jesus said go to Jerusalem Judea Samaria and the ends of the earth what are those places Jerusalem is where we live right it's where you live right here Carter County Elizabethan Judea fellow countrymen so everybody from north america here that's that that's that category we're given towards samaria that's the part of town nobody likes to go to right there's that's what samaria is that's the place locally everybody avoids Uh, when i lived in louisville they built an interstate over west louisville so people could avoid going through west louisville that was the part nobody wanted to go through and then ends the earth is self-explanatory to all the nations well which part's most important the answer is no mission field is more important than the other at the expense of the other right they're all of equal importance for the gospel so this is meant to highlight that need in judea now let me just let me try to churn the engine here to get your heart and desire to start praying for an impact and lostness in north america i called the north american mission board this week because i had old numbers on the estimation of how many people in north america this is just u.s and canada don't know jesus christ as their lord and savior does anybody want to guess that number What do you think? Give me a number. Come on. 10 million, right? 275 million people are estimated to be without Christ in North America. Just North America. That's a 2, a 7, and a 5 million people don't know Christ. How can we impact that? Now, before you start thinking through, well, they're over in West Virginia, Kentucky. They're on the coastal cities, and a lot of them are. Remember, some of that 275 million live right here in Carter County. They are your neighbors. They are your fellow schoolmates at school, your co-workers at work. They are walking around here, and they have no idea who Christ is. They are one heartbeat away from spending a paternity apart from Christ, right, and, and apart from his church. Let's pray for our neighbors right here to impact lostness in Carter County, and let's give prayerfully and pray for these missionaries this week. You'll have a different missionary you can pray for each day. hope you'll take this this week and make this part of your prayer time and consider how you can give above and beyond what you normally give to make an impact in these areas. Okay? All right. Let's turn our attention now to Scripture. Okay? We have been working through the book of Luke. This is the first time with us or the first time in a long time. We try to work through books expositorily, book by book, verse by verse. And we are coming here today to a narrative passage. Reviewing from last time we were together, Jesus has already rebuked a fever, and it came out. He rebuked a demon, and it came out. We actually saw a demon proclaim loudly who Christ was when nobody in his hometown would acknowledge it. In fact, whenever they saw who he was, they wanted to hurl him off a cliff and kill him. And here we are today. As Jesus' ministry has expanded, we see that he was told he was going to preach. This is what Luke has emphasized. And we are now at a section of Scripture where he has come to a lake and he is preaching there. So let's 
Let's look at this passage together. But before we do, let's spend just a moment in prayer and pray that God will prepare our hearts this morning to receive his word because uh, we know that the Lord helps, helps us to see the plain things of Scripture. So please pray with me this morning as we prepare our hearts to hear the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is living and active. It is not a dead letter. It is not a dusty volume filled with musty stories meant for people 2,000 years ago. It is your word in our eyes, in our hearts and lives this morning. So by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to appreciate that, that we can hear your word, read and proclaim. We, can, we are hearing your voice speak to us just as surely as Jesus' voice was heard by the multitudes in this narrative passage today, by the crowds and his disciples that were around him. Lord God, keep us from being blinded by enormous truths and the reality that uh, prevents us from having open eyes and beholding wonderful things in your word. We ask this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. Hear the word of God, church. On one occasion, when the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simeon's, he asked him to put out a little far from the land. And when he sat down and taught the people from the boat, and all he had finished speaking, he said to Simeon, put out into the deep and let your net let down your nets for a catch. And Simeon replied, answered, Master, we toiled all night and took and took nothing. That's your word. I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at his knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also was James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Amen. May God bless this reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. And I pray he will write this truth on all of our hearts this morning. When I am faced with a passage to study, particularly a narrative passage like this one, one of the things that I try to do is look at the verbs. When you have a passage like this, there are either things that you're supposed to copy and emulate. Emulate's another fancy word to say copy, do the same as. Or you should avoid. There are things in this passage that are both. But this is not just some dry, dusty story here. 
if you look at the verbs, this is what I do when I have a narrative passage. If you go all the way back to the beginning, to verses 1 and 2, right? And we're going to see, thank you. We're going to see here some verbs that are going to stick out, right? What are some of the verbs in this passage? Well, we see here pressuring, right? crowd was pressuring him. They're here to hear, right? He was standing. Jesus is standing. Look at verse 2. Set two boats. They're set there. Picturing gone out. We're washing. There's five different words that Luke uses for the word washing in the Greek. This one here just notes they're taking care of their nets for the day. Fishermen of that day had two sets of nets. They had a shallow set of nets that they would use in a clearer, more shallow water. Those were a little bit thinner, easier to, for the fish to see through. And they had heavier nets that they would use in deeper water to draw in the fish. So there's a lot of action here. The people are crowding around here. It, to set the scene for you here, this lake sits like sort of in a bowl. It's about 600 feet below sea level. And there are hills all around. So if you can imagine this, Jesus has started his ministry. He's been preaching in these little towns and communities around this lake. And the word has gotten out. This man can rebuke demons. He can rebuke a virus. He can rebuke all these different things. Uh, we want to hear this man. He speaks with an authority. He speaks with an engagement, right? Uh, I don't know if you watch Christian movies, uh, but particularly years ago, they were not well done. Usually, whenever they would have a scene with Jesus, like teaching about the Sermon on the Mount, they would have the actor who was playing Jesus, and he would, like, sit on a rock or something, and he would sort of speak this way, and blessed are those who are weak, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. And it is so dry and boring. Like, it makes me want to throw stuff at the television screen when I see stuff like that, because it's so inaccurate. I don't think, if this verse is correct, that people are gathering and putting pressure on him, around him, for that kind of delivery. Jesus would have preached in such a way that his delivery would have been engaging to the heart, the mind, and the soul. It would have engaged them all. And people are just drawn to him. From where? From all over. How many people are in this crowd, Pastor? I don't know. I would say hundreds are probably there. So Jesus knows as this crowd is gathering around him, he needs to find some kind of a venue of delivery. He doesn't have one of these, right? He doesn't have a microphone. He doesn't have a pep rally thing there. He needs something else. Well, with that lake being down 600 feet below sea level, it kind of creates a perfect amphitheater. If he could just get out on the water and speak loud enough, it would carry. Some of you saw Coach Bennett. He presented and showed photos of the place where they suspect Jesus did a lot of the teaching on the boat like this. And you can see, and he talked about how the sound would carry so well. So Jesus here is looking for a boat to turn into a pulpit, right? But what's interesting about this one little section, though, and what I want to draw your attention to is this. Let's go back to verse 1 for just a second. Verse 1 tells us what? On this occasion, while the crowd was pressing on him, to hear what? The word of God. Listen to me, church. The Word of God is the lifeblood of any church. If the Word of God ceases to be preached or ceases to be taught, it's a death knell for that church. It can't be the edited version that you like. It must be all of it in its glory and in its warts, right? There's some parts of it, and let's be honest, we don't like. 
but it's the Word of God, right? Parts that make me feel convicted. Can we just cut that part out? No, that's not how that works, right? It's the Word of God that is needed for the church. The church does not need skyscraper sermons. Story after story after story after story with no point, right? It needs, the church needs the Word of God. It needs the Word. It doesn't need pop psychology. The church doesn't need the pulpit to turn into a political rally. The church needs, Jesus here is modeling here what the church needs. The church needs the continual revelation of God from the written Word of God. That's what should come out of the pulpit week in, week out. Nothing less, nothing more, right? Okay. Verse 2. Two boats on the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Let me tell you what's going on here. I'm a fisherman, so I like this passage. I was raised to fish for crappie. That was the first fish I learned to catch. And if you don't know what that is, it's a delicious panfish that's kind of like candy of the lake. They're wonderful. Still love to go fishing for them. I was raised fishing Douglas Lake about my whole life. I was also raised on Boone Lake, but we didn't really eat the fish out of there because we weren't sure what all was in the water in Boone Lake, <laughs> to be quite honest. We're still not sure. You know, that, that reference came out about Bluff City just dumping their sewage into the lake for years, and we all sort of suspected it anyway, but there you go. So, right? Don't eat the fish out of Boone. We would eat the ones out of Douglas, but not the ones out of Boone. And uh, I, I, I tell you, when the fish are hitting, there ain't nothing better, right? You know, I can stand outside, fish for five or six hours. If that bobber's going under, or if I'm getting hits on the pole, and it is exhilarating. Like, when you feel the pole bend in your hand and you got something on the other line, it's like a shock of adrenaline. It's awesome. And when you're catching them, you don't know how much time has passed, right? You get into a a mess of them, a big school of them, and they're just hitting everything you throw out. You know, we jokingly say you got to hide behind a rock to put the bait on, right? Because they're just hitting everything you throw. And it's wonderful. And then there are other days on the lake, which sadly is more than that kind of days I just described. Those are the days where fish get a little, little problem we like to call lockjaw as fishermen. You know what that means? They won't open their mouth for anything. I've seen fish before. I've dropped a delicious, beautiful, fat minnow, perfect size for them, right in front of their face, but they're on the nest. They're not eating anything, and they will ignore it, right? There's a few things you look for to help you avoid lockjaw. Temperature of the water. If it's too high or too low, fish are going to go deep, but they're not going to be interested in what you have to offer. Um, if a cold front moves in, drives the fish down deep. If the water is choppy, if there's too much chop on the water, it's going to affect how they hit that day. You learn to read the water. You learn to understand the fish's behavior based on that. And these brothers had done the same thing. They'd been raised on this lake. They knew it like the back of their hand. They knew. They had spent all night. Now, I know their fishing method is different than ours today. So if you could think about this for just a minute... You know, those, those big nets that they would use out in the deep water, those things probably weren't light. And they're throwing them out and drawing them in. Throwing them out and drawing them in. Throwing them out and drawing them in. What happens after about eight hours of that and you're not catching nothing, right? I'm going to tell you what five minutes or about an hour of fishing with no fish feels like. It feels like eight hours. If you've not had one hit and you've been fishing for an hour, it feels like you've been out there a long time and for not a lot of benefit. When we're on Douglas Lake and we're having days like that, we start thinking about bologna sandwiches and turkey sandwiches and naps. 
you know, when we have got out there at like 6 a.m. that morning because it's just not happening on the lake that day. And uh, so this is kind of the situation that these disciples are in. They're, they're ready to be done, right? They're ready to go back to the house, eat a lamb sandwich. I don't know what they had back then. Have a little Father Abraham food and take a nap, right? They hadn't caught, they've come up short all night. Look what it says here in verse 3. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Remember, he's, Simon has already seen Jesus rebuke a fever from his mother-in-law. He asked him to put out a little from the land. Jesus here getting the amphitheater he needs to teach and preach. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. Again, we see this concept of the teacher or the preacher sitting, those who are receiving the word standing. Right? And I joked and said we need to go back to that, right? I can sit down. You all can stand. That'd be fun. It'd be fun for me. But anyway, verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. Down, let down your nets for a catch. If you're Peter, and you've just gone through this experience that I've just described, how eager are you to do what Jesus has just asked you to do? Not very at all. You're tired. You might even be a little grumpy, right? What's his response? Master. Now notice here this term. You know, in the other the other gospel writers, oftentimes you'll see the disciples refer to him as rabbi. But remember, Luke is writing to pagans like you and me. They don't have the term for rabbi as much, so the master is the term that he uses here. We we toiled, right? What's, what's implied of that work, right? Man, we've worked ourselves to the bones. My my back is aching, that net's heavy. We've just washed these things. We were done for the day. The gear was put up, man. We're done. We've toiled all night and took nothing. You can hear his almost aggravation at the whole situation. But, at your word, I will let down the nets. What we have here, what's going on? Is this true obedience in this verse? You know, this is begrudging submission, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's begrudging submission. It is, there is a lack of belief in this verse. I don't think Simon thought anything would happen different than what had happened previously. It reminds me of a friend of mine when I went fishing with him, Ron Schultz, up in Indiana. We, when I go fishing, it's a serious endeavor, right? This is my theory on fishing. The more hooks that are in the water, the higher percentage chance you're going to land a fish, right? So when I go out and I'm crappy fishing, I'm getting five or six dozen minnows for me for the day. That's just for me. Well, when I went out with Ron, he got us two dozen for both of us for the day, right? So guess what happened after about an hour? We ran out of bait, right? And so I said, listen, Ron, I'm going I'm to start throwing this slider here. I've had some pretty good luck with it in the past. Uh, you want one to fish with since we're out of live bait. He said, no. He said, I'm just going to throw this fly here. It'll be, it'll be good. Well, I'm on the back of the boat throwing, and I... I hooked a monster. For those of you that don't know, you know, a 10 to 13-inch crappie is a good-sized crappie. That's, that's a keeper. Can't keep anything smaller than 10 inches. I hooked a 15-and-a-half, 16-inch crappie. It's almost double, you know. It keeps getting bigger with each sermon I tell this with. Right? <laughs> almost double. <laughs> really about like that, but we'll pretend like it was like that. And uh, it happened. 
And I said, and I pulled, he said, oh, you, you've got a largemouth bass. Because when they're that big, their mouth, it looks like a largemouth bass when it comes up. I said, that's no bass. I said, that's a big old crappy, that's a big old slab. That's what we call them, slabs of meat come off of them. So I threw that in the cooler, and I'm in my bait box. I had to get a new jig because he tore that jig all to pieces, that slider all to pieces. And Ron said, you know what? Won't you hand me one of them sliders? I want to give that a try now. <laughs> Proof was in the pudding. He had to see it work before he really believed it would work. But the seeing came first. In a similar fashion here with Simon Peter, he's seen miracles before, but, I mean, no doubt in his mind he must be thinking, I I know more. I don't believe you here, Christ. And this is the, this is the pressure that we have as well. Are we going to believe Christ? Or do we going to think that we know better? Many times our experience would dictate that we know better. As a, as a young pastor fresh in the ministry, and I guess from some perspective I'm still young, I'll take that. That'll be great as long as I can. But I remember my first church that I got right out of the seminary. There was, well, you're not as experienced as we are, right? You don't know. I know what the Word of God says, right? Maybe I haven't been around this sun as many times as you are have, but I know what the commands of Christ are. Are we going to believe what He says over our experience? Hmm? Will we do what Christ says, even if we've not been successful and not seen the success that we thought we should see in the past? Will we be faithful... And giving the gospel to friends and neighbors, even if we have seen rejection in the past. And we've come up empty in the past. Let's see what happens. Verse 6. And they, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Now, I want you to see this. What you, I want you to understand what's happening here. This isn't just a, a good day on the lake for him. This is the pinnacle of his fishing career catch day, right? Like, he had never caught fish like this in his life. And the reality is, he never will again. <laughs> and he's got a choice right here. These nets are beginning to give way because this is such a, this is a career high catch day. He has a choice to make right here. He is seeing success in his vocation at the direct blessing of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is affirming who Christ is. But the choice he has to make is, is he going to be more excited about this fish and this pinnacle of his career and this catch day? Or is Christ going to be his true treasure? You see that? God may have you in a position that you were built to do and you may find success here's the danger for you there's a danger when Christians are successful the danger is this the successfulness of your earthly endeavors and your job and your vocation become what satisfy you more than Christ see here's the reality of it what happens to fish left in an Israeli sun all day out of water. And they rot away. Every career and dollar we make. <laughs> now there are jobs that were very prevalent jobs a hundred years ago that 
just don't exist anymore. Right? There were people whose job was to make sure all of the trains were oiled, and there were tons of those around. Right? There were there were men whose jobs was to make wagon wheels, to make sure that the the carriages kept going and went worked well 150 years ago. It's a very high in demand job, and there were men that were good at it, women that were good at it too. And now those jobs are nothing. There is no need for that anymore. Another thing that we see in this passage here. It appears to me that another inference from this text is that Jesus does care greatly about not just your soul, but he does care about your vocation as well. Right? I think there has been a poor divide in this country about sacred versus sacred. Excuse me, secular versus sacred. What I do at work is totally different than what I do on Sunday. You should consistently be the same person you are as you sit in the sermon on Sunday morning that you are when you go to work on Monday morning. The Lord has said many things about our vocation and our work. It would be silly to think. You know, I think about the life of Becky's Uncle Mike, who didn't even get to retire because he was a disease took him quickly. You know, he probably spent eight or nine-tenths of his life at work. Okay? <laughs> Jesus cares about every aspect of our life, not just what you do on the weekends. Amen? Verse 7. They signaled to their partners, the other boat, and they came and helped them. And they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. Again, you know, they weren't prepared for a catch like this. Who would be prepared for the, the ultimate catch ever you talk about records right it's always been my dream to catch the record crappy in like tennessee i just want to hold the state record for a little while right this that would be the pinnacle of my fishing career you know or my my fishing leisure for me it's not really a career but uh these guys just weren't prepared their equipment wasn't prepared their the the hall is so great the boat is beginning to sink the the nets are beginning to tear right they begin to sink look at verse eight what's the reaction but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What's, what's he saying? Jesus, jump out of the boat and get away from me. <laughs> get away, right? No. This is the moment where disbelief is vanished and Peter makes the right choice. It's no longer... I will just do what you say, but I recognize who you are. How did Peter address Jesus whenever he was in half-hearted disbelief? What was the term he used for him? Was it rabbi? It was master, wasn't it? What's the term he uses here? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And what's the term? Oh, Lord. Peter here recognizes that Jesus is God. He recognizes that he is Lord. He's not just a master. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a good teacher. He is the living God. If you were here on Wednesday night, and I would encourage you on Wednesdays, we're doing the attributes of God. We just covered the holiness of God. We looked at Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees a glimpse of the, of the throne of heaven. And in this, in this interaction... Isaiah says something that is perhaps unexpected for many people. He says, I am undone, right? We don't really have an English word for it, but let me kind of 
explain and unfold it. Isaiah is saying, I'm a, I can't go back to my life as it was. I am cut off and separated from all the people that I knew before. Uh, I, I am consumed and, and done. I'm, or as one translation put it, I'm toast. <laughs> right? This is what, there's a recognition here. You know, I like what uh, R.C. Sproul said when he talked about the holiness of God. If you were to see God in your current sinful situation, in this sinful human body that perishes and dies, it would be a traumatic experience for you. In fact, I would argue you probably wouldn't survive it if you were to see God in his pure glory. He understands this. He understands this is the God of the universe, the God who made all. Right? You ever thought about what the difference between heaven and hell is? Some people think Satan runs hell and tortures people, and that's not accurate. Satan is getting tortured along with everyone else. Here's what hell is. Hell is to stand in the presence of God for eternity. That's what hell is under his wrath. What is heaven? Heaven is to stand in the presence of God with the mediator, Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Right? Because when you stand with that mediator, you become a child, you become adopted, you become a son and daughter of the king. But if you don't have that advocate, you stand alone, and you stand under the wrath of God, and you are, as Peter said here, just a sinful man or woman and can't stand to be in the presence of such holiness. Verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So here again, they're, they can't believe this. This is the, this is the apex. They will, like, there will never be another catch like this. There has, in generations they've been on this lake, they've never had a catch of fish like this. There will never be another one. Verse 10. So were James... And John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. So Jesus here telling him what? Now that you believe. Now that you know who I am. You're still going to be fishermen. You're just going to fish for men. Right? It's amazing to me. So many parallels God is doing here. You know. These, these fishing boats, these old fishing boats taken out into the deep. All night they had been worked trying to catch just a few fish to survive on for their local economy. They come up shorthanded and Jesus borrows them, cast a net for men and women and boys and girls and catches and hauls in many souls for the kingdom. And yet here, takes the same boat and is able to do what these could never do without Christ. And now we see these men who are half-hearted believers, didn't know who he really was, are going to be sold out completely to following this king. No, they'll have their moments. Don't get me wrong. They'll fray a little bit, but in the end, they'll stand firm for Christ. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, look what this says. What's it say, church? They left everything and followed him. Could you do that? Could you leave the biggest catch and haul of your life? Many times in this life, we are called not so much to just try to make a decision between whether to do drugs or not or, you know, whether to murder somebody or not. You know, most, most Christians are not faced with that decision. 
the real tools that Satan uses is this. We have to choose between good and excellent all the time. Many things that are good, but they're not best. And this verse right here points this out. No one would have blamed them if they would have loaded those boats up with all those fish and took them in the town and made a killing money on that, right? No one would have blamed them for that. That would have been a good thing, providing for their family, taking care of their livelihood, all good things. But they saw the most excellent thing out there on the water that day, and it wasn't the haul of fish. The most excellent thing, the true treasure of this life, was not the pinnacle of a career. The true true treasure of this life was a relationship with Christ. And they will leave that behind to pursue him. What about you? Tell me, will you leave your nets and your boats? Will you follow Christ? Will you do it when all your co-workers shake their head and say it makes no sense? Can you imagine the other fishermen that day that were out there? What are they doing? They're just going to leave all that? Are you kidding me? Where are they going? Right? No. Peter knew what was most important. John knew. James knew. They knew Christ was the true treasure. What about you? Father, we bow before you right now and we thank you for this passage. Lord, we thank you that we're called to go out to the deep recesses of the love that you have shown us in Christ, to let our nets down and to haul in a catch of unconditional love that we've never known in this life. Lord, many of us have lived in conditional relationships our whole life. We have felt that we could only be loved when we love others. And when we do what they want us to do. And Lord, forgive us for not loving others well by just giving in to what others want. Help us instead to draw from your deep, unconditional love. Love that is only found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to draw that love into our boat to a point where our boats are just about ready to sink as we just relish what it means to be a child of yours, to have love like this. Lord, help us to see you as our king, our beyond just master, Lord, our savior and God. Lord, we pray, we pray this and ask this in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, amen. You have heard the gospel preached today. We're now going to have a song of response. If, if you don't know Christ, if you've never, you've never drawn your nets on the love, the unconditional love that Christ has for you, what prevents you today? What prevents you today from treasuring Christ the way that Peter treasured Christ? Why, there's no earthly gain that would ever compare to the gain of having Christ. Let's stand and sing.